The Bowery Boys, episode 212, The Bronx is Born. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom and I are about to tackle one of our greatest challenges yet. A thorough history of an entire borough over the course of of three podcasts. And of course, there is no better candidate for this sort of treatment than the borough with the deepest relationship to New York City, and that would be the Bronx. Now, of course, telling the history of a neighborhood, let alone an entire borough in a single episode, is nearly impossible. (laughs) We're crazy. Right. So what we'll be attempting here is a a three-part series to give an overview of the borough. Today, we're going to discuss how the Bronx transformed from from being fields and villages to become a part of New York in a very short time, and specifically how it joined the city in a way that was unlike any of the other outer boroughs. Now, we're going to illustrate this particular historical tale by using actual landmarks, names, structures, streets that still exist in the Bronx. Because Mm -hmm. if you look around, history is still with us, and especially in that borough. But I think that in the Bronx specifically, much of the history, much of the story is really overlooked, and much of it's misunderstood. And we went all over the Bronx over the past few weeks in our research of this tale, so we'll maybe stop the story at a few places and give you a little insight on places that you can visit today and and experience history for yourself. It's going to be a whirlwind trip, so join us as we spend the month in the Bronx. All right, Greg. Well, we have before us a rather ambitious project mm-hmm. today. So why don't you start us? I'm glad that you're going first, because that means that you get to start us by situating the listener yeah. just in terms of what we're even talking about here. It sounds strange to situate a borough since, right. you know, we've been talking about New York City in general for, you know, our whole existence on this podcast. But although people may know where the Bronx is, they may be surprised by what it's entirely made of. Okay. So the Bronx is the fourth most populated borough of the five, uh, with almost 1.6 million people that live there today. It is 42 square miles of land, almost all of it, attached to the mainland. Of the United States. Yes. This is what makes it wholly different from the other four boroughs, which are on islands or are islands. Right. The Bronx is the only borough that's attached to the mainland. Making it the northernmost borough. Directly north of Manhattan. And they have a very mutual relationship in this show. Mm -hmm. They almost touch. Almost. In fact, artificially they will. Okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves. (laughs) So the Bronx is framed by water. On the west side, of course, is the breathtaking Hudson River. On its jagged southern side, that side in which it faces into Manhattan Mm -hmm. and Randall's Island and all that, it's separated by the Spitendival Creek, Mm -hmm. the Harlem River, and the East River. On the east side, we have the Long Island Sound, 
Now, more interestingly is that northern border, which separates the Bronx from Westchester County in New York State. The northern border is almost an abrupt line that just cleaves it from Westchester County. Right. So there's a straight line across, but it's not entirely straight. No, there's a couple little parts, little variances. Mm-hmm. One of them is when it was created, there it scoops out another village there that was called Wakefield. So there's a little bump about halfway if you're looking at it in a map. And okay. then there's, a, there's another little squiggly part, which we won't get into the details, at the Hutchinson River. And that it originally followed the path of the Hutchinson River, but then when it was straightened, they didn't really change the city line. So there's a couple little variances there, but mostly it's just a straight path. Okay. I think the thing that can be kind of confusing is that the shape of the Bronx isn't easy to really describe. It's not really a circle. It's not really a rectangle. It's sort of wedges. In. Right. So it, it can be a little bit hard to, to visualize if you're not looking at a map right now. Yeah, it's not shaped like a boot or a right. hat or something. It's right. just an unusual shape. So let me just help us out here a little bit by sitting back, Tom, erase everything from your mind, erase the towns, erase the neighborhoods of the Bronx, erase these borders that I've been talking about, erase the highways that Robert Moses built through. I'm sure a lot of people would love to do that. Erase everything you know about the Bronx, every misconception that you even have and that our listeners have about the Bronx. Just erase it from your mind. It's gone. Now think of the beauty of the Hudson River Valley, how gorgeous it is even today. So think of our borough here as an uninterrupted continuance of this beauty with mighty hills and rocky outposts on the western side and thick forests and vibrant waterways that are coursing through the center of this area and on the eastern side. Wow, sounds gorgeous. When when was it like this? Before mankind ever set foot upon this land. Well, I take that back. There was some human interruption here among the natural beauty of the original Bronx area. And that was, of course, the tribes of the Lenape, whose encampments were often near the waterfronts the jagged waterfronts and their well-trodden trails, which were often along the landscape and running along some of these waterways like today's Bronx River or the Hutchinson River. And, and the Bronx River, it should be noted, uh, the, the river that gives the Bronx today its, its very name sort of bisects the borough straight down the middle from north to south, let's just say, for to, the to, sake of argument. Right, to generalize it, let's say that it separates it from the east side and the west side. Right. But back to this idyllic painting that mm-hmm. you've um, <laughs> forced us to erase our brains for. Are, are there still places you can go in the Bronx today to experience this setting? Believe it or not, unlike, say, Manhattan, which has almost no natural forests except for a couple places, up here in the Bronx Park areas of the Botanical Garden, and even up at Pelham Bay Park and Van Cortland Park, there are natural forests from this very era, from this pre-European era that you can kind of still wander around and sort of get lost in, in your mind. Now into this land intruded, perhaps, um, the Dutch, who, as we know, in 1825, built a fort at the foot of Manhattan and then brought settlers in to populate what would become New Amsterdam. 
These were Dutch fur traders and as such, you know, wished to hold as much land around their settlement as possible for their company, the Dutch West India Company. And of course, that land they would call New Netherlands. So did any of them locate up here in today's Bronx? Yes, and it's kind of interesting why. Because it seems kind of far away right. from, you know, from the, from the settlement, from that New Amsterdam. slow moving to get downtown. <laughs> Essentially, William Kieft, who was the director general of mm-hmm. New Amsterdam, needed some of these European settlers to spread out over the property, make relationships with the native people, and hold that border, essentially to hold it against the other colonies, i.e. the British. And we talked about that in the podcast on the Lenape a few shows ago, how it was really about bringing people over Mm -hmm. to claim the territory for the Dutch. And indeed, in 1638, Kieft purchased, in quotes, purchased land in this particular area, in the Bronx area, and then granted permission for certain English to make settlements here. Now, these first pioneers, as you can imagine, led very rough, very dangerous lives here. If any of you out there have seen this current movie, this 2016 movie, The Witch, it's actually set during this period, and it's about a similar situation of a family settling in a kind of unknown forest. I imagine it's very much like what these first settlers experienced. So this is the late 1630s. Who who were these people? Well, for instance, uh, one of the English settlers in the southwest corner of today's Bronx was a man named the Reverend John Throckmorton or Throgmorton. And he was settled on that neck. That's just that neck of land that's just out a little bit on the sound. Now, just to the north of that was another settlement of a, a woman who I think we know quite well. Her name was Anne Hutchinson. She was a Puritan charismatic who broke with the Massachusetts Bay Colony and was essentially, she and her family and her servants, banished from the colony. And they settled in an area north of Throgmorton in the area of today's Pelham Bay Park. Now, they were both English, but there were, of course, people of other nationalities that settled here as well, including one Jonas Johansson Bronk. Mm-hmm. He was of Swedish origin, and he had a 500-acre farm on the banks of a river that the Lenape called the Aquahung. Now, the key of, with, of all of these, of course, is in order to survive here, they needed to have good relationships with the native people. And indeed, it seemed like these three settlers, these three groups of settlers, as well as the others in the region, seemed to have that good relationship at first. At first. That sounds rather ominous. But these people were also not alone. They were coming with families or with other people in their groups, right? Right. But they didn't have large groups at this time. And so they were in danger of something going badly and being a being attacked by the native people. And in fact, unfortunately, that is what happened in 1643 when the long bloodshed known as the Keefe's War, which we talked about in the Lenape show, basically the native people retaliated against these settlers, which ended up being a death sentence for many of them, including Miss Hutchinson and her family, uh, who were brutally slaughtered on August of 1643, they, the entire clan was murdered, except for one young daughter of Hutchinson, who was found around a rock called the Split Rock. And she was discovered by the Indians. And because she had red hair, she was spared. And eventually she went and lived with them. Now, 
The Split Rock, Tom. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Why, in fact, yesterday, Greg and I were just driving around the Bronx um, trying to locate some of the landmarks that we'll be talking about in the show, mm-hmm. and we were able to, to locate the Hutchinson Split Rock. We'll have a little bit more about the Split Rock at the end of the show, so stay tuned. And unfortunately, we don't know exactly for sure, but Jonas Bronk, mm-hmm. uh, he died um, on his settlement as well. And he disappears from the records at, in 1643, same year as Anne. But Bronk would leave a permanent impact, of course, on the area, for future settlers would continue to call this former farmland Bronxland. And the river next to it would be Bronx River. Eventually, of course, we would call it the Bronx River. The borough is named for the Bronx River, which is why we call it the Bronx, as opposed uh-huh. to calling it the Brooklyn or the Staten Island. <laughs> kind of like we refer to the Mississippi as the Mississippi. The, the, the old Mississippi. Ah, so when we're talking about the Bronx, we're talking about the Bronx, parentheses, river. river. That's right. I wanted to give a shout out to one settler who was actually Dutch, who settled along the eastern edge of today's Bronx. His name was Adrian Vanderdonk. And I only wanted to mention him because his land holding was so large that he was actually graced with a Dutch honorific. It was a nickname, but he was called Jonkir or the Jonkir. And of course, that's Uh where we get the name of the town that's right north of the Bronx, which is Yonkers. Yonkers. Okay, but with 1664, the English are now in charge of uh, the colony, now called New York. Mm -hmm. Does that change the situation up here? It really does, because the Lenape are weaker. There's fewer of them. And, you know, now the British aren't fighting against another colony. Right. They're not afraid of a British invasion. (laughs) No. So they were able to establish permanent settlers at this time. And in fact, life would develop in a more farm estate approach up here meaning and meaning, this w- meaning what exactly meaning that uh, it would be these large settlements but sometimes with up to hundreds of people who's who would work upon the land and that land would be governed by one particular person chosen or granted authority by the crown so people with sort of ro- royal ties or who were favorites of the crown could yes. be mm-hmm. granted a charter yes now we're going to talk about a few of these gentlemen but i want to point out one rather jaunty fellow by the name of Frederick Vlips or Vlipson um, because he we're, we've been talking about Sounds flippant. <laughs> I don't mean to be flippant about him. We've been talking about English settlers upon Dutch land. Right. This is actually a Dutch guy who is settling upon English land. Well, because they didn't all just move away. No, no, no. It was They all had to make deals and to get ahead in life. And he was certainly someone who was an opportunist and full of ambition. Uh, he worked his way from being a tavern owner to being the richest man in the town of New York. Vlipson arrives in New Amsterdam in 1653, marries into money, then ingratiates himself with the English here. He even anglicizes his name to Phillips. Mm-hmm. So Frederick Phillips. From Vlipson to Phillips? Yes. I mean, it, it kind of works. They're, okay. just, you know, they're just similar. He purchases thousands of acres of land between the Harlem River and the Croton, over 9,000 acres. Now, he's also, I should add, one of the largest slave owners 
in America at this time, and, and many slaves worked upon this property. In 1693, he's given the privilege of operating the first bridge that would link the island of Manhattan to the mainland, quote, established by royal grant of William and Mary to Frederick Phillips of the manor of Phillipsburg, unquote. So where was this bridge exactly? So, well, you know the, the neighborhood of Kingsbridge? Yes, Kingsbridge. Kingsbridge. So the bridge for the king was planted at Kingsbridge, which is in the West Bronx. Well, this sounds like a lucrative deal. <laughs> yes. You had to pay tolls, you know, to Fred Phillips here every time you wanted to get on or off the island of Manhattan. Many, many decades later, in 1758, in fact, bold farmers erected their own bridge. And that was, of course, appropriately called the Free Bridge. Ah, where was that? Just further east to the King's Bridge. So you would rather take the Free Bridge. Naturally. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned the Phillips, who mm -hmm. lived over in this giant parcel of land. Right, the western side of today's Bronx. Right. And that there were English and Dutch people. If we jump up to, say, around 1700s. Yeah. If you lived in a town, there were, there were really two settlements um, in, in the 18th century. You probably lived in either Westchester or just north of it, Eastchester. They didn't uh, call it Northchester? <laughs> <laughs> West, hold on, don't get me confused because this is already confusing enough because Westchester, the village of Westchester, sat inside the boundaries of today's Bronx, mm -hmm. right? But at the time, it was inside the county of Westchester. So before there was a Bronx, mm -hmm. Westchester Village mm -hmm. was in Westchester County. And so today, Westchester Village, which is Westchester Square, right? Right. It's not actually in Westchester. No, it's very much in the Bronx. However, <laughs> Eastchester mm -hmm. is both in today's Bronx and Westchester County. There's a neighborhood of Eastchester in the Bronx, and then there's the town of Eastchester, which is in Westchester County. Got it. But those are just people who lived in those villages. There were a lot of people who lived on one of four big estates, all of them run by these well-connected family. You mentioned the Phillips and Phillipsburg, or that mm -hmm. territory. There was also Fordham that was established in 1671 yes. off to the western side. There was Pelham Manor off in the east and the northeast. And then there was, in the southern section, the um, Morris estate of Morrisania. And we'll kind of talk about all of those mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the, the village of Pelham. The, no, the manor of manor Pelham. Pelham. Right. We only have two villages we're talking about, right, remember. Right, right. But the East manor. Eastchester and Westchester. But the manor yes. here, Pelham meaning owned by Pell, I believe, yes. right? Thomas Pell of Connecticut, mm -hmm. um, who traveled down and settled this village in 1654 in the eastern section of the Bronx near today's Pelham Bay Park. I was reading a bit about Pell. He's a he's a surgeon, although I guess it was kind of easier to be a surgeon back in this particular day. And so how did he get this large property? Well, for Pell's story, we have to rewind just a little bit to 1654. It was Pell who came down from Connecticut, and there were no villages around here. And he brought down 16 families, and they settled the area that would become Westchester Village, which is today's Westchester Square, over on the east side. But unfortunately for Pell, he forgot to ask the permission of Peter Stuyvesant, who was the <laughs> right. leader of the Dutch colony. Because technically it was New Netherlands, although I guess with not a lot of people up there, it was kind of hard to enforce you know, people coming in and out. 
it, it was hard to enforce, but it doesn't mean that Stuyvesant wasn't trying to enforce. <laughs> um, and he was not pleased at all. He ordered this group of people back up to Connecticut, but he eventually turned around and let them stay. You know, he was wishy-washy on his immigration <laughs> policy. <laughs> And so Pell would hold on to a, what would become a very large parcel of land, and he would end up uh, selling off bits and pieces of it. He retained Pelham Manor and a big chunk of it off to the eastern side for his family. But he sold off other, other sections, including a parcel that would become the village of Eastchester. Mm-hmm. So it was from this that we get Westchester, Eastchester, and today's Pelham Bay Park. Mm. And so he, Pell and his descendants, had it through the entire English period and even into the period that the Bronx was part of the United States. Remember that Farmer's Free Bridge that you mentioned? Oh, yeah. That was opened by a Benjamin Palmer who basically lost all of his money because he built this thing and forgot to charge admission. (laughs) Well, Palmer was so enterprising, he just kept cooking up schemes. And so he hatched this idea to build a new port and ship-making center that he envisioned could actually compete with the port of New York. He spotted this small island on the Pell property, just off the mainland, and here he could actually stop the naval traffic that was heading into the city from the Long Island Sound. So if you imagine Long Island, Mm -hmm. um, imagine instead of coming south of it and into New York Harbor and and up into the city that way, you go north of it, right, and come down the East River. Well, if you're to do that, you would pass by this little island. And so he, he raised the money from investors and he purchased it in 1761 and named it City Island. Again, Palmer is so ambitious here. Uh, What happened to City Island? Well, unlike that farmer's free bridge, City Island was a flop. Oh. It didn't really turn out the way that he was expecting. It did not really compete effectively with the growing trade that was happening in the port of New York City. However, you, you can still visit City Island today. It still has an original street going straight down the middle. In 1873, uh, it, it got a boost when a land bridge connected it to the mainland. And today, it's a very charming escape from the city. If you can make your way out, drive across, or you can take the bus to City Island, walk around town, check out the cemetery, as mm-hmm. we did yesterday, or sample any of the fried fish baskets <laughs> that are on sale. It's a very isolated place by design, and it has a very small town feel. In fact, it's quite different from the Bronx. But as we'll continue to tell the story, you'll realize that there's many different kinds of Bronx here. But that was 1761 when the island was purchased. So we are about ready to fight the Revolutionary War here. And unsurprisingly, there was a lot of activity up in the Bronx during the Revolution. Now, we don't have time to tell the entire thrilling story of New York during the (laughs) Revolutionary War. Um, However, we do have a great podcast on the subject uh, that's worth a listen. But, But the Bronx saw a lot of British activity and a Patriots, Continental Army activity as well during the conflict. And I think it's important to remember also that it wasn't easy, you know, for these powerful families that operated these estates up here during the conflict because many had to choose between staying close to power, and of course many were in positions of authority, mm-hmm. Or siding with the Patriots, you know, which was romantic and which might have appealed more to their patriotic side. But it was certainly risky 
uh, they were risking not just their lives in doing so, but also their fortunes. Yeah, you would have lost your land and have gotten thrown into prison, perhaps. Right. And in some some of these families tried to do both. You know, they tried to hold on to their high positions of government while still secretly siding with the continental forces. Some, like the Pells and the Delanceys, who were also up here, we didn't mm-hmm. mention them, but they were <laughs> up and around buying some land. They sided with the British forces and, unsurprisingly, after the conflict, would lose their land, while others uh, fared better who sided with the Continental Army. Were there any specific battles that occurred in the Bronx? Because a lot of these families had affiliations, but mm-hmm. was there, were there any skirmishes of any kind? Yes. One of the most important parts of the war that was fought in New York happened early in the war over in today's Pelham Bay Park. This conflict, which was called the Battle of Pell's Point, occurred on October 18th, 1776. So early in the war, which started in 1776, mm-hmm. and just shortly after the Battle of Long Island, um, in which British forces entered through Long Island, today's Brooklyn, and forced back Washington's troops all the way to the East River, and then in the dead of night to Manhattan. Washington stayed in northern Manhattan at Fort Washington, but he, but he was also worried, you know, that Howe would flank them and either attack from behind, from the Hudson, or by sailing into the Long Island Sound and landing to the north and, and taking a road that went directly to Kingsbridge and attacking him there. So it turns out, long story short, that Howe went for the second plan. Howe first landed on October 12th at Frog's Neck. Frog's neck. <laughs> that sounds like something I ate at City Island yesterday, actually. You mean frog's neck? Fried. Well, he, Washington called it frog's neck, um, which had sort of devolved from Throck Martin. To frog's neck. To, and frog, an, an to event, frog's neck, and then eventually throg's neck. Which is what it is today. So anyway, Howe's troops landed at throg's neck, only realizing too late that they had actually landed on an island and they'd have to cross over this sort of marshy land to get to the mainland and that that there were continental troops positioned there blocking their access. So six days later on October 18th, they landed again at Pell's Point in Pelham. However, Washington had gotten wind of this, had seen where this was going, and the day before on October 17th had started to march his troops north all the way to safety in White Plains, retreating and leaving the island of Manhattan, Mm -hmm. leaving some soldiers behind to sort of guard Fort Washington. But most of the troops took off and evacuated the city. So did anyone try to stop Howe? And how did they do it? Yes, a troop of 750 Continental soldiers from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who were headed by General John Glover, fought back valiantly, even though they were vastly outnumbered by the 4,000 British and Hessian troops who were advancing upon them. And amazingly, they were able to push back and to stall the, the British advance so that Washington could escape north to White Plains. And, and you can visit the site of this battle today, Glover's Rock, which is right off of Orchard Beach Road in Pelham Bay Park. Greg, we wow. drove by that mm-hmm. yesterday, and we said, what's that rock over there, remember? <laughs> yes. So that indeed is where that battle was, and not that far from the location of Anne Hutchinson's former settlement. No. Or City Island. Fort Washington, by the way, would fall in November, just a month later, and the British would basically hold New York throughout the rest of the war until 1783. 
But isn't there another Revolutionary War site over in Van Cortlandt Park? Well, you might be talking about the Van Cortlandt House. Mm-hmm. Indeed. The house, the Van Cortlandt family house, was built in 1748 by Frederick Van Cortlandt. But at the time of the war, it was occupied by Augustus Van Cortlandt, who was a clerk of the city of New York, a big, powerful family. This is a big position. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he had a, a residence downtown in New York, but he also had this lovely family estate up here north of the city. Well, Augustus was afraid for the safety of the city's records, and so he secretly snuck them up for safekeeping and hid them in a burial vault in the backyard, or way back um, on a hill, way behind the family manor. What? The yes. city records? All the city records. And and don't forget that he was also working for the English government. So thus illustrates, obviously, like some of the conflicts that these families were facing. He's tied to and working for the British rule and at the same time uh, sympathizing with the patriots and hiding the city records for safekeeping throughout the war, burying them literally off here in the Bronx. Wow. And and his family would have to host not just Washington three times overnight, but also General Howe. So, you know, he really had to be versatile in <laughs> B- his hosting. Both sides of the conflict uh, in his dining room. But it was here in Van Cortlandt's house in November of 1783, where Washington spent the night before marching down victorious into the city on evacuation day. Today you can visit the house, which is a museum, and they will show you the room where Washington is believed to have stayed. And there's even a coat that resembles General Washington's that's slumped over a chair. And it's a it's fascinating museum. It's like he just museum. walked into the other room. You just missed him. There's even a little glass of brandy poured, poured for him. Uh, or maybe that's someone who works there. I don't we know. We contemplated reaching over and seeing if it was real. So all these big families with various relationships uh, to America, both pro and con, but after the war here in, you know, 1783, when the war is over. Right. But there is still one other really big family mm-hmm. that, that we absolutely have to mention here. And that would be, of course, the Morris family, mm-hmm. which is a long lasting New York family with an incredibly confusing lineup of similar sounding names. <laughs> Lots of Lewises. <laughs> yeah, there are, oh, we'll focus on just one Lewis, but it's really hard to keep them straight, Greg. So don't be fooled by the Lewis that he's not. <laughs> <laughs> he's still He's Lewis. still Lewis Morris from the Bronx. <laughs> So the Morris, and so I assume this is these are the landowners of Morrisania here. Right, that was the name of their large estate. And unlike the Delanceys, the Morrises were big supporters of the Continental Army. And there's a whole lineup of notable Morrises, but I'm just going to mention two here. Mm-hmm. Lewis, as we mentioned, but we want to talk about the Lewis who lived from 1726 to 1798. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was owner of Morrisania, and he had a half-brother named Governor Morris, Mm -hmm. or Governor Morris, who lived from 1752 to 1816. And Governor Morris Mm -hmm. is one of the architects of the Constitution, and we Uh, talked about in in prior shows, of course. An incredibly important figure. He was also an ambassador to France during the French Revolution. He was a U.S. senator uh, from New York. He helped develop New York's street grid. Now, in 1783, after the war, as debates raged about where to place the permanent capital of the United States, 
Morris modestly suggested that they might put it right there in Morrisania. So the Bronx almost became the sort of D.C. of the United States. Yes. I mean, well, I mean, it's kind of fun to consider, especially because it would have been so close to City Island, which would have been the, the biggest port in the oh, nation. Man, Palmer would have really been raking it in. Man, I feel bad for him. But the Morrises are one of the most important lineages to the foundation of the United States. And I find that they're very, very underappreciated. And nowhere is this more obvious than if you go today to St. Anne's Church, uh, which is located in the Bronx at St. Anne's Avenue at about 140th Street, where you can visit the graves of three Morrises, Lewis, Governor, and Governor's wife, Anne, for whom the church is named. But you need to know before you get there that the church is sorely underfunded. And I think that that's indicative of the fact that the Morrises are underappreciated. No, it's beautifully and even mysteriously overgrown, these particular vaults. I mean, it's just sort of taken over by nature. Because Governor is underneath an elm tree in the churchyard, but it's totally overgrown. But it's definitely worth a visit because it's one of the last remaining vestiges, except, of course, for the name, which still is retained in the neighborhood. After the war, the region's population grew a bit, but still only to about 3,000 people by the 1830s. But the 1830s in New York was kind of a boom time, so certainly some of that must have reverberated into the area of Westchester Bubbled forth Mm -hmm. like the Croton Aqueduct. Well, the Croton Aqueduct was under construction, and certainly, you know, it was constructed to bring water from Westchester down through the Bronx, Mm -hmm. over the High Bridge, and into Manhattan— But probably the most important development yet for the history of this entire area happened in 1841 when the New York and Harlem Railroad would chug through. With the opening of this railroad, the Bronx and Manhattan became much, much closer to each other. We'll talk about the after effects of the railroad and how it would change the fate of the Bronx forever. We'll get to that after the commercial break. So, 1841. Up until this point, the Bronx has been pretty much comprised of these estates, these manors, these farm estates, with a couple villages located here or there. So when this train station opens, and it opens with a single train stop at Fordham, Mm -hmm. well, it cannot be overstated how much this interconnectivity, finally connecting the Bronx with other areas, how important that is to development. Well, because people could get to their estates, but I guess anybody could get here. Right. I mean, this was ostensibly done to kind of help people get out of the city. And as a result, this area of Westchester County becomes a commuter town. People decide that, you know what, now I'm connected to New York City, which is down in lower Manhattan, Mm -hmm. but I don't... On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about 
better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Necessarily have to live there anymore. Now, as a result, properties that are along the train line, and later they would open, of course, subsequent railroad stations, Mm -hmm. but these properties would become very valuable and as a result would be purchased and then sort of divvied up and then sold, developing new neighborhoods that are oriented based upon the railroad. So that led to a land development boom. I mean, and this happened mostly in the area of the South Bronx. This is the first development of urban infrastructure. And all, so all of this development was around this first stop in the South Bronx? Well, in, in subsequent stops and area that was south of it, um, essentially there were, these would be little depot towns, Mott Haven, Melrose, Morrisania would be its own little town and then neighborhood all developing and starting in the late 1840s. Mott Haven, in particular, was founded by an owner of an ironworks named Jordan Mott, who bought land from the Morris family so that he could then sell the plots to various people. So this is a a real era of real estate speculation. It's happening down in New York. It's happening eventually in Brooklyn. And so this is the first speck of that here in the 1840s, thanks to the railroad. But all of these developments you're talking about are in the sort of southern section of the Bronx, just across from northern Manhattan. Right, right. I mean, the area of today's South Bronx. And we'll keep coming back to this area because it is the most densely developed. And it starts here in the mid-19th century. But these other areas, you Mm -hmm. know, up in the old Phillips area, the 
and the Over Pels, the West Side. All, all of these other places, they do eventually get chopped up into smaller and smaller parcels, although then they become more of like mansions that wealthy people own and would go up to during the summer. Uh-huh. Uh, but less, to escape the heat and the disease right. of the city. This is, of course, happening all up in Upper Manhattan. It's happening up and down the Hudson River Valley because it's so beautiful, of course. There are a couple notable examples of these homes that are still with us today, which is which is great, and you should visit them to kind of get a sense of what life was like in the a- mid-19th any century. Any in particular that you want to mention? Well, uh, one of my dear old favorites happens to be Wave Hill, which is on the Hudson. It was built in 1843, built, no surprise, by a certain William Lewis Morris, who was the grandnephew of the Lewis Morris that you mentioned. Uh, which was- one? <laughs> a a Lewis, <laughs> one of the Lewises. We went to Wave Hill On the past Sunday, weekend, and it's so tranquil and it's mm. so separated. Of course, this is how the wealthy lived in this period. And what's amazing about this particular campus of houses, because it's actually a couple other properties today, is how it can really take you back. It's almost timeless in a certain sense. And right? today you can wander and sort of lose yourself in the the gardens and stare out across the Hudson at the Palisades. It's gorgeous. And over the years, Mark Twain and a young Theodore Roosevelt and Arturo Toscanini have all lived at Wave Hill. Another example of this form of home is from 1842 as well, and it's on the other side of the Bronx, and that is in the old Pell property. The Bartow Pell Mansion is also from this particular period. And another example of a lavish home, they would have had a full staff, stables, small farm and garden, very cozy and remote on a winter's night. This doesn't date all the way back to the original Pell, though. No, it's the Pell family, but this house is only dated to the 1840s. And I don't know how cozy the the mansion really is. I mean, cozy, <laughs> I'm imagining is something far smaller, like some little attic space. But Leave me uh, to my romantic mind, Tom. <laughs> uh, but certainly not everybody was living in one of these mansions. No, but there is, believe it or not, today a superb example of how the normal folk would have lived back in this period. And this particular house, which is still with this, only exists because it's associated with somebody famous. So, you know, you're either rich or you're famous, and that's how your house gets saved. Oh, famous. Is this somebody I might know? Uh, It definitely is. But to get to that story, Uh I need to stay in the opulence just a little bit longer. Uh, Here in 1841, in this little village in Fordham, this Uh, village of Fordham, um, there was another little house here. It was called Rose Hill. Another fine house that was passed down the way through several owners. In 1839, it was bought by a man that we've mentioned in a couple shows in the past, John Hughes, the Archbishop of New York. He would be Archbishop from 1842 to 1864, who set his eyes on crafting a college, building a seminary for Catholics, who were, of course, steadily growing more prominent in the 1840s. And let's be honest, they needed a safe space that was a bit out of town, that they could kind of relax, right? So in 1841... The same year that this railroad is opening. Yeah, a lot happened in Fordham that particular year. Hughes opened St. John's College, which in the 20th century eventually take the name of the village itself, which is Fordham, and this would be Fordham University. 
Got it. But back to this mid-19th century celebrity. Oh, right. I'm so sorry here. Now, well, in that same decade, here yeah. comes along a writer who moves into the neighborhood, who appreciates the solace of the clean air of this area of Westchester. In 1846, in fact, moves in Edgar Allan Poe. He moves into a small cottage with his mother and his young wife, Virginia, who unfortunately and tragically dies in this particular cottage. The reason that I'm associating him with Fordham University mm-hmm. is because Poe would actually become quite fond of the teachers at St. John's, which would, of course, become Fordham. He described the teachers as, quote, highly cultivated gentlemen and scholars who smoked, drank and played cards like gentlemen and never said a word about religion, unquote. Later, after his death in 1849, a poem by Poe would be published that people believe is about the bells of St. John. Hear the loud alarm bells, brazen bells, what tale of terror now their turbulency tells. Wow, he did not like the neighborhood bells. <laughs> well, the, it's a, it goes into different emotions. The bells can be scary. The bells can be joyous. It's a beautiful poem. So is there any way to visit part of Poe's uh, Bronx experience oh, today? Oh, yeah. Well, the house is still miraculously with us. It's been moved around, but it currently sits upon the Grand Concourse and very near today to Fordham University. And again, this, this is the 1840s. Yeah, all of everything I've said is the 1840s. A boom time up here in the Bronx. Oh, yeah, and I'm not even done. In 1848, a bridge would be built that would link Manhattan with the Bronx. However, this is not a bridge for pedestrians. It's a bridge for water. This would be the high bridge, part of the water system that you mentioned, that right. the Croton Aqueduct system that would bring water down to lower Manhattan. Again, part of the reason that there was a flurry of construction is that a lot of the landowners were really encouraging it because uh, they saw what was happening down in New York. People were parceling up these lands and mm-hmm. making a ton of money. So they, they wanted to do that up here in the Bronx. And these projects also required workers, and many of the workers could move up from Lower mm-hmm. Manhattan to the Bronx and live up there. It'd be far more convenient for them just to live on site. And there were a lot of Irish and German enclaves. Because these are the waves of immigrants who were coming to the city in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. Yes, and these enclaves would, of course, form the nucleus for a lot of neighborhoods today. And, and they bring along some of their other sort of industrial know-how, mm-hmm. say, in setting up breweries. There were German immigrants who brought over and set up breweries right here. There were also giant ironworks that set up shop, uh, fueling the Industrial Revolution that was taking place at the time and, and even producing ammunition for the Civil mm-hmm. War. I mean, I mentioned Jordan Mott, but there were many ironworks and many foundries around here in this area. Well, including most famously, probably. Did you know, Greg, that the iron frame of the Capitol building, the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C., was produced in the Bronx at the Jane's Kirtland and Company Ironworks um, on 149th Street? So not only could the Bronx have been the home of the U.S. Capitol, <laughs> but now it actually literally physically makes the Capitol. It's just too bad that it wasn't the Capitol because <laughs> it would have been so much easier to transport the dome of the Capitol just right over there to Morrisania. <laughs> just a couple blocks down the street. <laughs> you know, we, we should have probably mentioned this when we were talking about City Island, but another piece of the Pell property, another 
Island on the property is actually called Heart Island. It's and and it's the easternmost piece of land in the Bronx itself. Heart Island has served a number of different uses uh, since the 17th century, including during the Civil War as a prisoner of war camp, but probably most famously or infamously or sadly, um, after the war, it became home to a potter's field and is today the final resting place of more than one million people. Wow. I mean, you can't access it today for obvious reasons. Unless you're related to somebody who's interred there. But uh, when you go to City Island, Mm -hmm. you can actually view Heart Island, and it's a very haunting, moving image, of course, because you have Heart Island, and then you see a bunch of sailboats in front of it. It's a, right. you know, because it's, it's a very active area of water. And when we're talking then about a potter's field, just to remind people that this is a cemetery for people who, for whatever reason, didn't have money to pay for a burial in a cemetery of some sort, and. While we're on the subject, mm-hmm. we should also mention that in the 1860s, on the other end of the spectrum of cemeteries, Woodlawn Cemetery opened here in the Bronx. It was open to anybody, that is, who could afford to buy burial rites within its walls. Woodlawn Cemetery's 400 acres include a who's who of notable New Yorkers who have chosen it as their final resting place. From famous musicians and showmen uh, like Miles Davis, uh, help me here, Duke Ellington, Irving Berlin, George M. Cohan, to politicians like Fiorella LaGuardia, you know, giants in finance and robber barons like Jay Gould. Madam C.J. Walker is also interred there. Right. Retail giants from F.W. Woolworth to J.C. Penney. And what you really notice when you visit today in this beautiful space, it's um, almost like a park and open to visitors to walk around and enjoy, are the mausoleums. There are more than 1,300 private mausoleums, many of them designed by real notables in the architecture world. stained glass windows. Tiffany windows. Yeah, huge columns. Right. Amazing ironwork. Oh, and Tom, by the way, you forgot one other person who is also eternally at Woodlawn Cemetery. And he's a person who's going to come up in the next two parts of our show here. And has come up in many shows before. His name is Robert Moses. That alone makes Woodlawn deserving of a trip (laughs) uh, to anybody and deserving probably of its own episode. Mm -hmm. Now, another spot that's located not far from here uh, that we need to mention that opened in the 1860s is the Jerome Park Racetrack, which was opened in 1867 by Leonard Jerome and his business partner, August Belmont. A place for the rich and famous to display their racehorses and to get together and do a little gambling. That's right, because by this point, as you mentioned, many wealthy families had purchased weekend and summer homes that were up here, or they could just drive up or take the train up to the racetrack and partake in the convivial atmosphere. And it was just a year after its opening in 1867 that Jerome held his very first Belmont Stakes here at Jerome Park Racetrack, named for his good friend, August Belmont. 
Well, by the 1860s, after the Civil War, things yeah. are going pretty well down in New York. We have an influx of money uh, really starting. All these Gilded Age millionaires are, are making their names. And just as importantly, we have millions of people who are starting to arrive at the city shore. And the city population that is absolutely bursting at the seams... The city is developing northward, looking for territory into which it can expand. And what's the obvious place? Well, just the area to the north of the city. And by the 1860s, there were already elevated trains in Manhattan that were going up and down avenues, and more of them would follow very quickly. And those could just jump over the Harlem River in a way that they couldn't just jump over the East River. So it made sense that that progress would take us mm-hmm. north and into the Bronx. It seems like there was a natural relationship here between New York and this area of the Bronx, which was already filled with people who were doing business in New York. Right, and it seemed like many of the people up here welcomed the city's advance upon them because, you know, the city brought with them utilities. It would bring its water because, okay, the the aqueduct is going through... Uh, through these villages, but it's not stopping and giving Mm -hmm. them their water. It's just (laughs) passing through. They really wanted the city to move in because all of these other benefits would make their land more attractive to new development and make it more valuable. And the thing that to really stress here is that in comparison to Brooklyn, which is a whole city Mm -hmm. and didn't need that, these were little towns. And they were sitting on top of a gold mine here. So there was a natural attraction between these two. Well, in 1868, the neighborhood of Mott Haven made itself an especially easy target because this area, which is just across the Harlem River from, let's say, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Avenues um, in Upper Manhattan, they decided to adopt the city's grid plan. Now, if you're not from Mont Haven or the Bronx and you don't already know this, check it out on a map and you'll see uh, that the neighborhood's southernmost street is 132nd Street. And that fits in perfectly uh, just across the Harlem River with the Manhattan street plan. So they adopted the street plan and basically said, hey, over here, move on in. <laughs> they sort of dress like New York with the hopes of becoming New York. And lo and behold, in 1874, three southern towns, all of which were on the west side of the Bronx River, Morrisania, which included Mod Haven, West Farms, and Kingsbridge, voted to be annexed into New York City. And this area, this territory, became known as the Annexed District. The first official extension of New York City. But what would this mean for these towns and for the thousands of people who lived here. And what about the other parts of today's Bronx that were just kind of sitting there watching? Well, that's the story we'll be tackling in part two of our series, Building the Bronx. Please check out our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, for many images from this period. No photographs, but lots of uh, vivid illustrations from the Dutch period all the way to the era of the Annex District. We would like to thank Angel Hernandez of the Bronx Historical Society. 
and Martha Gellens and Deirdre Laporte of Wave Hill, who gave us an amazing tour. And Susan Olson and Anastasia Ocarantina from Woodlawn Cemetery uh, for giving us a little tour of that place. We'll be doing things on the blog throughout the month that are specifically related to Bronx history and tying in some of our stories and adventures at those places and in other places that we've been into in the Bronx. Such as our adventure just yesterday when we headed out to Pelham Bay and hunted down the split rock, the site of Anne Hutchinson's settlement, which was not easy to spot. We parked our car next to the Cross Bronx Expressway and went on a little adventure in search of the split rock. Here's a little preview. And mind you, we really don't know what we're... I mean, we know what we're looking for, but we don't really know that we're going to find it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And we could meet anybody around this turn. It looks like there are a lot of bottles here. People, oof, old cans. Somebody likes to drink around here and throw the bottles on the ground. (laughs) Um, By the way, there is along the pass, which is not a well-trodden path by any stretch of the imagination, is somehow also lined by a wooden fence. Maybe that wooden fence, Greg, was here before I-95. It looks old. You know, because we do think that this was... Um, this was obviously much easier to get to before I-95 was uh, plowed through here. So we will be releasing the rest of this for all of our patrons to listen to. It's about a 10-minute piece that takes you back in search of Anne Hutchinson's Split Rock. Uh, you can join us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. It's because of the support of our more than 500 patrons that Greg and I are able to produce a new episode every two weeks. So we want to thank all of you who have joined us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. And we have a special little extra for most of our shows. And this one will be released in the coming days. You can also find the Bowery Boys on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. So that wraps up part one of the history of the Bronx. We'll see you in two weeks with our second part of this series. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Thank you.